Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden with the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome to the Central Library as we have another edition of our special Writers Live series. And this series is brought to you by a very generous grant from PNC Bank, so we thank them so much. Um, this evening, we are honored to have with us an author of a fascinating book about the origins, demise, and redemption by the former president of the American Psychiatric Association. And we are delighted to have him here in Baltimore and with us at the Pratt Library. Now, I must tell you though, the timing was wonderful. When we set up this program, we did not know that on this past Sunday, a librarian's and most authors' dream came true with a wonderful review in the New York Times book review section. I mean, let's just say that could be a harrowing experience, uh, and it was a wonderful review. And so we're delighted that in our series that's dedicated to bringing a range of ideas and information to the public that we could bring this to you. And also, we'd like to thank special donors who are here tonight and patrons, um, and especially Monica and Arnold Sagner for bringing so many people here tonight. Some have even said they're here for the first time. So we can't thank you enough. Now back to this evening. To introduce our special guest tonight is the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University Met School of Medicine and the Psychiatrist-in-Chief. That sounds really good. Psychiatrist-in-Chief of Johns Hopkins Hospital, Dr. Raymond DePaula, Jr. very much. It's really nice to be here at, the, at this library. I must tell you, this is an inspiring place to me. Uh, but I have to tell you that the main trip, trip reason I came here was with my daughter when she was in the 10th grade and was writing a paper on uh, Pope Leo XIII's response to the Industrial Revolution. Okay? Now, so tonight it will not be quite so heavy, heavy as that. No, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, uh, we're very lucky to have this institution, and uh, I also want to thank the Sagners for their, for their support. Uh, but I also want uh, Jeffrey and Rosemarie, first of all, thank you both for coming to Black to Baltimore. Jeffrey was here just a few months ago uh, to review my department. I'm still alive in one piece. Okay. <laughs> and, um, but uh, welcome back to Baltimore. And um, um, to tell you that I'm also pleased to, meet, to see so many people that I know. At least they know my wife, uh, Joanne. Uh, and, um, but uh, Jeffrey is a person that... Uh, has always been a man on the move. Uh, I'm glad he sat down long enough to write this book uh, 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 because it's a very interesting tale. Uh, we all, uh, you know, every day, one of the reviews of a book I read recently that says every person is a story, and you, this, is a, this is a real story. This is a real narrative, okay, and uh, written from Jeffrey's personal perspective. I don't know if he knew uh, uh, Wilhelm Reich, but he certainly writes about him uh, vividly. <laughs> um, and uh, it's also my... Uh, honor to not only introduce uh, Jeffrey, but to tell you a little bit about him, but I'm also going to get the honor of introducing uh, Dr. Kay Jamison, a professor in our department, and, and my, uh, if, if you will, partner in crime for many years. Uh, Kay has introduced me to many great audiences, and I'm sure it's because of, 
of Kay that I, I get to come to places like this, okay? So uh, and Kay herself has, has, uh, has, has written many books and has seen many reviews in many places and, um, and, has, and bears the scars that testify to that effect at, at times, uh, as we all do. But at um, any rate, so Dr. Lieberman, as I mentioned, uh, is, a, is a fellow who's been on the move for a long time. Uh, he is uh, uh, currently, and for the last about 10 years, the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia uh, Presbyterian. Uh, and uh, and the, the, the College of Physicians and, and what is it? Physicians and Surgeons. Um, uh, he's had a, a career uh, that's been from uh, I think uh, New York to uh, North Carolina and New York again, and probably a few other places as well. But I did lose my crib notes, uh, so I can't tell you exactly when he moved from where to where. But uh, he has led uh, huge uh, studies, many large studies. And uh, probably the, the largest study done ever on the use of what we call antipsychotic medications, called the Katie study. Um, and uh, so that he knows uh, what, of what he speaks, uh, not only uh, as a psychiatrist, but as a researcher. Uh, and he leads the department that has the, the most grants. We're all very jealous of him. I want you to know that. Uh, the largest number of NIH grants of any department in the country. And that happened under his tenure. So you know he's got to be doing something right. He's got a great department, uh, uh, and he's made it only a lot better. Uh, and, uh, and of course, he and I have a connection, uh, uh, and that is to say that uh, the New York State Psychiatric Institute, which is probably uh, his, uh, one of his gems, along with the fact that he is also, I think, psychiatrist-in-chief. Aren't you named psychiatrist-in-chief at Presbyterian Hospital? So there are a few of us who have those titles. Uh, it's, it's a burden we bear, but it's, it's actually, they do sound a lot better than these other titles we have. Um, but... Um, uh, Jeffrey has, uh, has done it all. I mean, he is, he's, he's done the research firsthand. He's taking care of patients firsthand. Uh, he's met a lot of interesting people along the way. He's led the programs and developed programs. So uh, he's a very interesting fellow. You want to know what he thinks about things. And if you want to know about, uh, about uh, psychiatry, uh, he's gotta, he'll tell you, okay? And he, he's going to tell you in a little bit. So my other uh, joy, as I said, is to introduce uh, Kay Jameson, who is the uh, Dalio Family Professor of Psychiatry uh, in our department at Johns Hopkins, and Kay ha has uh, written a lot more than I have read, and, uh, and so that uh, this is going to be a wonderful uh, occasion to have the two of them uh, speaking together about uh, Jeff's book. So with no further ado, Jeff and Kay, please come forward. Terrific to be here. Uh, honored to be interviewing uh, Dr. Lieberman. Uh, I had suggested that he read a little bit from his book because I think if you just get interviewed, the tone of your book gets submerged. So, do you want to start by doing that then? Absolutely. Well, I will follow Kay's lead virtually anywhere, but particularly sort of in the, um, <clears throat> the literary area because uh, she is an uh, iconic figure and I'm, I'm the neophyte here. Uh, but first I wanted to say I thank everybody for coming and this is a wonderful venue to be able to do a book event. Uh, and I want to thank Monica and Arnold Sagner for their wonderful hospitality in hosting this event and the opportunity to meet everybody. So um, <clears throat> you know, this was really kind of a quixotic effort to try and uh, provide my perspective on the field of psychiatry and mental illness um, and to hopefully in the process kind of cut through a lot of the misinformation and the 
<clears throat> uncertainty and try and set the record straight about what psychiatry was, what it can do, and how it can help individuals with mental illness. And um, <clears throat> the way I came to it was, I guess, you know, being a good Jewish boy, I was to some degree born with some ethnic pressure to become a doctor, but not necessarily a psychiatrist. But when I was in college, I read, as a pre-med student, uh, an introduction of psychology, Freud, and it was really an aha experience. And everybody who reads Introduction of Dreams has that experience because Freud had such a brilliant theory and was such a, a brilliant writer. You know, it just opens up a window into your own personality and who you are. Uh, but at the same time, I was a child of the 60s, and I was in school during a time when, you know, sort of the counterculture was afoot and recreational drugs were abundant. And uh, I, in my sort of conservative, risk-aversive way, partook uh, in the form of uh, hallucinogens. And I had an experience where after having read Freud and understood, understanding kind of the psychodynamic theory about how the mind functions, how people evolve, how personality develops, then took 50 micrograms of lysergic acid diethylamide and had this like amazingly profound experience where you think you're like envisioning the insights and profound under secrets of the universe and having those great understandings. And the next day you wake up and you read your notes on this and you find out it's kind of incoherent gibberish. Um, but what struck me was not so much the profound insights, but the fact that 50 micrograms of some pharmacologic substance could so profoundly change your, your mind. And if that was the case, then some inborn area of metabolism or or, or aberration in biochemistry could also do it. And maybe that was also the case of mental illness. So that got me interested in the brain. And, and, but after 30 years uh, having been in this business, meaning psychiatry, psychiatric medicine, taking care of patients, doing research, which by coincidence was the period, 1970s through the 21st century, when psychiatry experienced the sea change in its understanding of the basis of mental illness and having gone from having few or no treatments that were effective to having an array of treatments, both psychopharmacologic and psychotherapeutic, that were effective and were also evidence-based, um, I became frustrated because even though I saw what treatment could do for many people, you know, take illnesses which would have been disabling or would have been a lifelong sentence to an institutional life um, and enable them to be productive and live normal lives, but they were being deterred from seeking treatment because of the fact that there was still lack of awareness, shame and prejudice, and uh, also lack of knowledge of how to find competent care. And it was out of that kind of motivation that I thought, you know, quixotically to maybe try and write something that would help to clarify things. So that was really the motivation. So um, I'll just read to you uh, one section at the end of the introduction. So my, my editor said, look, you can't write this for your colleagues. You've got to write this for a broader audience. And um, 
If you do, you've got to make it different than your usual turgid prose for the uh, academics. Um, so uh, I tried to make it a little more lively and put in some anecdotes and clinical cases, all of which are true, by the way, uh, but anonymized. But at the end of the introduction, the introduction begins with a, a, a true story about a child of a celebrity who's ill, but the, the family didn't want to acknowledge mental illness and so forth. They did everything they could to avoid it. So at the end of telling that story, which you, know, you can read in the beginning of the book, um, I came to this passage. So that's why I wrote the book, to provide an honest chronicle of psychiatry with all its rogues and charlatans, its queasy treatments and ludicrous theories. Until quite recently, authentic scientific triumphs were rare and bona fide scientific heroes, rarer still. The history of sibling specialties like cardiology, Tom, <laughs> um, infectious disease and oncology are mostly narratives of steady progress punctuated by major leaps forward, while psychiatry's story consists of mostly false starts, backward steps, and extended periods of stagnation. But the full story of psychiatry is not just a dark comedy of fanciful missteps. It's also a detective tale propelled by three profound questions that have vexed and beckoned each successive generation of psychiatrists. What is mental illness? Where does it come from? And most pressing for any discipline devoted to the Hippocratic Oath, how can we treat mental illness? From the start of the 19th century until the start of the 21st, each new wave of psychiatric sleuths unearthed new clues and mistakenly chased shiny, shiny red herrings ending up with radically different conclusions about the basic nature of mental illness, drawing psychiatry into a ceaseless pendulum swing between two seemingly antithetical perspectives on mental illness. The belief that mental illness lies entirely within the mind and the belief that it lies entirely within the brain. Regrettably, no other medical specialty has endured such extreme volatility in its fundamental assumptions and this volatility has helped forge psychiatry's reputation as the black sheep of the medical family, scorned by physicians and patients alike. But despite its many false leads and dead ends, the detective story of psychiatry has a gratifying finale in which its driving mysteries have begun to be elucidated. Psychiatry, like no other medical specialty, is like no other medical specialty for transcends mere medicine of the body to touch upon fundamental questions about our, our identity, purpose, and potential. It is grounded upon a wholly unique doctor-patient relationship, for the psychiatrist often becomes privy to our innermost thoughts, our most secret shames, our most cherished dreams. The modern psychiatrist finally has the tools to lead us out of a maze of mental chaos into a place of stability, insight, and possibility. The world needs a compassionate and scientific psychiatry, and I'm here to tell you, with little public fanfare, that such a psychiatry has arrived at last. And the rest of the book is basically trying to describe how it evolved and why what I'm claiming to be the case now is, is really uh, true. Great. It's, it, he's written, Jeff's written a, a tremendous book, and really... Um, I think what you're doing is, is kind of capitulating a history of a field, of a very interesting field. Um, and I completely agree with the charlatanism 
that the field has been riddled with until recent years. On the other hand, I think if you look at, if you were an Egyptian 3,000 years ago, or recently I'm writing a book about, you know, the history, part of it is the history of mania. Um, you know, you have somebody who's manic, you don't have medicines, you don't have anything, what do you do? And so I think that the question in the field is, I think well-intentioned people trying to come up with answers to things that are simply impossibly complex and pe that people don't understand. And I think it is true that modern psychiatry and, and psychology have grappled with these, and, and it's really very exciting. So what I want to do is, since the arc of your book is historic, uh, and the history of ideas and the history of medical practice, is ask you two related questions, and uh, just ask you a few questions in general, and then leave it open to questions from you all. But um, if you went into a doctor's office in the mid-1850s, and you were depressed, let's just take the field, you, you do schizophrenia and done it very, very well, but if you take the most common illness in psychiatry, um, and you were depressed in the 1850s, and you went into your doctor's office, what would you expect? And then I want to ask you that 100 years later and then now, okay? So what, what would your doctor have asked? What would he or she been, he until recently, uh, what would he have done? Well, in, in the 1850s, um, melancholia was you know, known to be a condition um, and so severe depression was known as melancholia, and really there was nothing that could be done for it. I mean, people, if they were cared for their families, physicians could do nothing to really sort of minister to them. Uh, they would use, I guess, what the treatments of the time were, whether they were purges, whether they were um, uh, you know, phlebotomies, um, but there was really nothing that would be prescriptive for that particular condition. If they had mild depression, the mild depression was probably referred to as something like neurasthenia. And um, the only thing that was really effective with neurasthenia was essentially hypnotism. You know, the use of what Mesmer had pioneered as being the most famous uh, physician of the 18th century and was continued to some degree by a neurologist called Charcot. So in, in the mid-19th century, the people that saw individuals with depression, if they didn't need to be institutionalized, were uh, either neurologists or psychiatrists, which was the time when the discipline was just beginning to differentiate and would see them in their office in the same way they saw individuals with anxiety or who had um, what were called sort of hysterical conversion reactions uh, or psychosomatic conditions of that sort. So. The, the, there was no sort of highly specific prescriptive treatment. The treatment was either institutionalization, the standard medical treatments, or in the case of something that was thought to be maybe related to uh, the mind and the body, um, some, some version of hypnotism. And what kinds of questions? I, I ask you this because a, a lot of your book focuses on how do you diagnose? How do you determine whether something fits into a constellation of symptoms that would be major depression or schizophrenia or major anxiety, an anxiety disorder. Um, so what would the doctor, would the doctor have had any diagnostic tools whatsoever? Um, they would be, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a sort of the, if, you know, if all you have is a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. So it would have been, you know, a physical exam such as it was at the time plus an, an inquiry of where does it hurt, um, what, is, what ails you, 
uh, what may be, what may have happened, what may have you done you know, recently that may have accounted for this. Um, there wasn't a mental status exam of sorts. It was a, a very kind of rudimentary type of um, evaluation of anything which was beyond some uh, inquiry about sort of physical symptoms. And then in the 1950s, which would be sort of in the heyday of what I think many of us would say was less than helpful for the major psychiatric illnesses but, um, and, and more prevalent in this country than in Europe, uh, the psychoanalytic age. So if you, if you went into a psychiatrist's office in the 1950s, what kind and depressed, what would you expect? Well, the, the inquiry would have begun with, you know, what is your chief complaint, meaning what, is your, uh, what ails you in terms of symptoms or effect it was having on your ability to sort of function. Um, but then the inquiry would have uh, immediately kind of devolved towards an exploration of your past history, not your past history in terms of, you know, your... Um, uh, uh, psychological development or your medical history, but in terms of you know, sort of the psychosexual history to allow the doctor to have made a psychodynamic formulation. In other words, what was your relationships with your parents, your siblings? Um, uh, how did you form relationships? Uh, you know, what were your fantasies um, of ultimately sort of what dreams, what was the content of your dreams. So it would have been an initial kind of inquiry about your current ailment and describing that, was it something related to anxiety? Was it something related to uh, sadness? Was it something related to sort of perceptual or you know, uh, ideational phenomena? And then a uh, kind of reflexive focus on your um, psychological history with an emphasis on sort of psychosexual development and relationships to uh, critical family members. And there would have been, and then obviously what, you, what you're emphasizing is, okay, the contrast between this very primitive state where everybody got psychoanalysis if they could afford it, which was always a very small percentage of people, um, but where there was one treatment for all of the major psychiatric illnesses, really, that, that would be prescribed, um, and, except for ECT, perhaps. So and, and there were, there were when, when illness was severe enough to require institutionalization, right. other methods were used, mainly for the purposes of, of uh, you know, controlling agitation. Um, there was insulin coma. There was um, uh, wet packs and hydrotherapy. Mm -hmm. uh, there was the use of um, sedation in the form of insulin coma in one hand, but also just using you know, large amounts of sedative agents. Uh, ECT was also used. Um, and uh, so these were, these were used um, you know, for the purpose mainly of kind of finding some type of uh, method of restraint and, and, and calming individuals. But I, I guess what I would say is that um, being that there was no understanding of... The, there's no theoretical understanding of the nature of mental illness. Originally, there was a, a very strong emphasis in the mid-19th century of a biological basis, but that basically uh, dissipated when there was no success in identifying the pathological footprints or stigmata of mental illness and pathological analysis of post-mortem 
material. And Freud then came in with his theory, which introduced this brilliant formulation of how the mind works and how pathologies could develop. And so everything got refracted through that theory because there was nothing else to, to, to replace it. Uh, and that was applied to everything from the worried well to individuals with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, you know, major depression. Um, and obviously it was ineffective. And that, in large part, was uh, very damaging to psychiatrists' credibility because, uh, one, it was not scientifically verified, and two, it was, it was, it was ineffective. Right. It just didn't work. And then, then the 50s, obviously, in the 60s, you saw this tremendous um, increase in both re- basic research and in terms of treatments. I mean, the first treatments, serious treatments, uh, started rolling out. Uh, so if you came in now to your office and you're a patient and you've got depression, what kinds of questions would you ask and what kinds of treatments would you see as possibilities? Just to try and give some contrast here. Well, I'll answer that, but let me just you know relate uh, uh, something. Um, and so in the book, um, so I, I trained in the 1970s, late 1970s, and um, in the book I talk about, so th- this was really at a time when the uh, inflection point, the transformation of psychiatry from being sort of either previously theoretically barren or dominated uh, hegemonically by psychoanalytic theory was beginning to change, was beginning to give way to scientific developments in the context of psychopharmacology and neuroimaging and genetics and the emergence of neuroscience as a discipline. Um, And so there's an anecdote in the book where I talk about the fact that um, uh, a family member of mine became ill. This was like in the late 1970s and you know, I had to refer her to uh, treatment. And um, the question was, who do I refer to and where? And I had learned enough, even though I was in being indoctrinated into going into the standard path, which was, you know, that of being kind of an analyst and pursuing an analytically oriented practice, um, to question that, since the problem that my, my cousin suffered from appeared to me to be a mood disorder and probably bipolar disorder. But serendipitously at the time, um, John Finer, who you will know, uh, was a kind of an um, iconoclastic psychiatrist from Washington University in St. Louis that kind of uh, uh, departed from what was then the prevailing dogma, the, the mainstream of psychiatry, and forged sort of a new approach to understanding mental illness. Um, uh, he had given grand rounds at my hospital, and he... So I had a little conversation with him, so I referred my cousin to him specifically um, because I didn't trust referring you know, her to what would be the normal you know, leading institutions in New York City, which were dominated by psychoanalytic theory. Um, but now that's not the case. You know, now the field has, I mean, psychoanalysis is still part of psychiatry, but it's sort of like a niche. And... Psychiatry has become what I call in the book pluralistic, and it's has a uh, uh, it's a practice based on informational uh, uh, sources from neurobiology to psychodynamics, but also in terms of cognitive psychology. And 
most places now are competent to manage people. So if a person comes into your office with um, depression, they'll be evaluated in a fairly standard way, which is, you know, what is the problem? Okay, well, I'm not feeling very well, and I'm not you know, able to function like I did. And then there'll be a series of questions which tries to identify um, what is the person's mental state, uh, what has been the history of this current episode of, of problems, what is their past history, both psychiatric and medical, um, and then any kinds of laboratory tests or imaging procedures that are needed. So the technique will be pretty standard as opposed to a reflexive kind of um, focus on, you know, what was your relationship to your mother and, you know, uh, how were you toilet trained and, um, you know, how do you feel about, uh, you know, women and so forth and so on. And it, it'll, it'll be informed by psychodynamics, but it won't solely focus on that. So one of the, I mean, both by dent of being a schizophrenia researcher, but also by dent of your uh, being past president of the American Psychiatric Association, a lot of the discussion, not a lot, but quite a bit of the discussion in your book is necessarily on diagnosis. And I would like to ask, why is it important that you, that you go through having a systematic series of questions? Because I think one of the things, because of all the movies that are out, people often think they just go into a shrink's office and lie down on the couch and just start free associating away. They have no idea that they, are, they ought to expect somebody to ask a series of very detailed questions for at least an hour about family history, symptoms, sleep, and, and so forth. So what, from your perspective, as somebody who's dealt with the issues because the American Di- Psychiatric Association is really responsible for the diagnostic system, what's the importance of it? What are the pitfalls? Where do you see it going? Well, um, first of all, so I'm a psychiatrist, Case, you're a psychologist. Um, medicine is, you know, kind of a bore. I mean, it, it's, it demystifies things. Science demystifies things. Maybe that's why it's not so popular. Um, so, you know, a lot of in literature, whether it's Chekhov or Jane Eyre or, you know, whomever, um, a lot of the characters and the, the sort of drama in history, you know, Eugene O'Neill is born from psychopathology, but it, it creates this amazing dramas. So for, you know, psychiatry to sort of burrow into it and say, oh, well, this person has this kind of molecular problem with their, you know, neurotransmission is not going to really uh, create great theater or literature. Um, so there was a period when you know, psychiatry believed that everybody was ill or everybody had their own particular form of madness and there was no basis for diagnosis because each person's diagnosis was unique to themselves. So you needed to basically tell their own story in order to formulate what their problem was. Um, but that's not consistent with what medicine does. Medicine defines syndromes based on signs and symptoms and then it looks at what the underlying pathological basis is, what's the cause of those symptoms, you know, depending on what the organ system is. And then it tries to find out what is the actual cause of the pathologic basis in the symptoms, you know, the etiology. You know, is it you know, too much cholesterol clogging your coronary arteries, or is it you know, a virus <clears throat> producing AIDS? Or, 
Is it an autoimmune reaction producing uh, rheumatoid arthritis? Um, and, and then create tests that you can use to diagnosis as a way of getting to treatments. So, you know, psychiatry has tried to follow the same path. The only problem is, is we're still stuck at that <laughs> syndromal level. We don't, we don't have the diagnostic tests. We don't have the etiologies, the causes. Um, but we're trying to, at least if we can't be certain about the cause, we're trying to be consistent about how we define things, if for nothing else, to know if treatments work. Because you need, when you test a treatment, you have to have people suffering from the same conditions. Um, so um, this is really a, the motivation which informs psychiatric diagnosis, which led to the DSM and which led to the kind of seminal uh, third revision of the DSM, which really took psychiatry from kind of subjective opinion and description of diagnosis to something which was much more systematized. And if you, th if you think of this of, say, 25 or 30 years from now, somebody comes into your office and the differential is between schizophrenia and bipolar illness, and, I mean, because the person acutely psychotic looks pretty similar. How, what kind of tests do you think you'll be ordering then that you aren't ordering now? I firmly believe that um, you know, uh, diagnosis for mental illnesses will <clears throat> be uh, informed by um, various types of laboratory testing in the, I would say, near future. So near future meaning certainly by latest within a decade. If we're lucky, it may be within five years. But it'll be imaging procedures, whether it's MRI or PET scanning based. So right now, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing Alzheimer's disease is being able to be, the diagnosis being able to be confirmed either by a lumbar puncture, analysis of CSF, or, or with um, uh, PET scanning with amyloid-based proteins, or even with, with MRI with a, a certain test. Um, I think you know, these procedures will be useful for specific psychiatric disorders. Also, I think the idea of having um, some other tests, whether they're uh, blood-based, measuring proteomics, meaning the kind of analytes uh, in measured in plasma or serum. They're already being marketed, but they haven't been validated. But there are things out there on the market, just like there is 23andMe for personalized genetics. Um, I also think genetics will, just like with cancer, is already happening. Cancer, you know, it used to be that you would diagnose cancer and develop treatment based on uh, anatomy, what organ, and and histology, you know, what staging, uh, stage one, two, three, Gleason score. Now you're looking at these molecular signatures and choosing whether they're, you know, triple negative or herceptin positive. Um, uh, these will be useful. So, but, but that'll answer if you're vulnerable to, not, not whether you're going to get it, you're, being, you're, you're becoming ill immediately. That's, but the other thing is that we also may be using electrophysiologic measures, measures to have an EKG for the brain for this. So I think through one form or another, we will have these diagnostic measures that will then act as sort of confirmation of these symptom-based diagnoses. Let me just ask you two more questions and open it up to people. One is that um, I know you from your pers um, perspective and from your position get a fair amount of what I get uh, from public appearances, which is a lot of flack from the anti-psychiatry movement. And um, it can be very 
frightening. It could be very unpleasant. Uh, it, it represents, at its best, um, an, an informed debate, and at its worst, just sort of intimidation uh, and, and prejudice. I'm wondering what your experience has been and how you handle it and what you think about it. Uh, well, I'm, I'm amazed and appalled by it. Uh, you know, there's no other f discipline of medicine that has an anti-movement. You know, there's no anti-dermatology movement or you know, <laughs> anti-orthopedics movement. Uh, it's only psychiatry. And it started in the 1960s um, when Thomas Zaz, you know, a, a self-hating psychiatrist, uh, wrote a book about the myth of mental illness, and he joined forces with L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology. Um, but... Uh, at the time, you know, you could maybe see why this was the case, because in the 1960s, up to the 1960s, you know, psychiatry hadn't distinguished itself as a very effective profession. And um, at the time also, uh, the asylum movement, you know, mental institutions had reached its zenith in terms of number of people that were in mental institutions in the country. It was like f almost 550,000, and the conditions were appalling. Um, so, and psychiatry had, you know, psychoanalysis had become a little bit of a, not laughing stock, but it had lost its credibility because it had made claims that, you know, could not be realized. Um, so there was a lot of reasons to doubt psychiatry. Um, but things have changed, and so it's like fighting the last war, uh, the last battle. Um, and um, the people that are per perpetuating this are pursuing an ideological bias, which is prejudicial, and it has the effect of, you know, it's the fog, the fog of mental illness. It's, it's, it's clouding the atmosphere and deterring people who may need help from, from seeking help. Um, and so I basically, I, I mean, I, I, I just basically become enraged and really uh, very angry about it, but at the same time uh, feel that you know, one needs to sort of respond to it in, in a measured way in the question of sort of how best to do it. The thing that bothers me most is the media trades on it, you know, in their desperate effort to be controversial and, and get viewers or sell papers. They indulge these anti-psychiatry people, and um, that's extremely detrimental. And, uh, you know... I'll go anywhere to debate any of these individuals because there's really no question they can ask that I'm afraid of answering. Right, and let me just end by asking a question that is just speaking of the news uh, about the German pilot and the issues that it raises about the ability to predict um, potentially dangerous behavior, suicidal behavior, what ought to be done. I mean, these are hugely complex problems and no easy answers are people would have figured them out already. But I just wonder what your views are on what's happened. Well, and that's a good example of how the media kind of, instead of like constructing, constructively dealing with an issue, you know, they, they, they don't and they you know, sort of use it as a basis for kind of irresponsible kind of speculation which sensationalizes something. So this is a terrible thing. Where mental illness sort of plays into this is unclear. Uh, the evidence, the information is just incomplete at this point and unconfirmed, so it's not known whether depression or suicidal tendencies or anything else was a factor. You, know, you could say anybody that does something like it had to have been mentally ill. Well, maybe, but you know, ideologic zealots who fly into the World Trade Center 
They're not mentally ill. Um, now, this guy may have had a grudge. You know, it's like the postal worker who gets fired and comes back and shoots up, you know, the office. Um, was it that? Was it he had macular degeneration and he was afraid of losing his job? So it may be, I mean, most people with depression, even though they could be impelled towards self-harm, don't kill people in the process. But by the same token, some people who are depressed can have their perspective and judgment so distorted that they may carry out an act like this, and particularly if they're psychotic in the process. Remember Andrea Yates, this mother from Texas who had a postpartum depression, psychotic depression. She killed her five children because she was completely delusional. So we just don't know yet. But the thing is is that um, it sort of reflects the general public and media lack of sort of interest in really understanding mental illness and instead, you know, dealing with it. It's the same thing with these civilian massacres that occur, like with Jason Loeffner, Jared Loeffner, or, or, or um, Adam Lanza. Um, you know, it's gun control. We've got to get into gun control, um, as opposed to why are these people untreated, you know, when they've been ill for many years? Uh, so um, I think as we find out what this guy in Germany was really suffering from, it'll be interesting and it may inform the policies by which you know the aviation industry decides how it wants to you know, screen people or not i mean they get checkups all the time if they have heart disease if they have asthma if they have a seizure disorder presumably they have to have that treated and if it's in remission they can fly but if it's not they can't so why shouldn't it be the same with depression if depression played into this so we'll see but you know up until now it's been you know the same old kind of um you know, kind of exploitative and uh, kind of speculative uh, you know, treatment of the topic. I agree. I think, and I think it does bring up the possibility of having a public discussion about mental illness and people who are in a position to damage other people. That's a legitimate issue, whether it's a doctor or a lawyer or a pilot. Um, but you also want to make the gradient, you want to make the system one that rewards you for getting treatment doesn't reward you for keeping quiet. And I think that hopefully that will come out of this. So why don't we ask if there are any questions that you all have? Go ahead and ask your question. And we ask that you use the microphone because we're taping this for our podcast. So you'll be next. Okay. Thank you very much. Good evening, Doctor. Very good presentation. Now that the winter season's over, hooray. Um, this, some of us suffer from a syndrome where there's not enough, during the wintertime when it gets dark early, some of us don't have the natural light to be able, you know, we're in a different kind of mood. It's called the blues, the winter blues. And then when springtime is here, we liven up again for the next three seasons. So what can be done about it? I know there's some sort of light technology, but there's, is there anything that psychiatry can help with that, with that problem? Thank you. Uh, well, actually, there's a lot that can be done. Um, light therapy being high on the list, certainly. Um, antidepressant medications, uh, cognitive therapy. There are all sorts of, uh, of different treatments out there. So, yeah, there's a lot. And, uh, but light therapy is one that has been around for quite a while. And light therapy long before lights. I mean, in the sense of, like, sun. <laughs> you know? uh, so there, there are treatments for seasonal affective disorder right now. And there's... I think a good opportunity for research on how 
you know, the, um, uh, the um, kind of the rhythms, the, the, the areas of the brain that sort of orchestrate seasonal and circadian rhythms influence uh, mood regulation um, that can lead to even more specific or more effective treatments, but it's something that is recognized and for which there currently are some effective treatments. Good evening. I have um, a two-part question. Yours is a difficult profession to sustain. I was wondering, number one, what has brought you the most personal satisfaction over the years? And two, since you've done so much research and done so many interesting things, now what is the cutting edge of your curiosity? Thank you. Um, so uh, I think the, the thing that's far and away the most gratifying is when you change people's lives. You know, there's a, there's, there's a, a joke that's told in medical schools about um, uh, internal internists, you know, know everything and do nothing. Surgeons know nothing and do everything. Psychiatrists know nothing and do nothing. And pathologists know everything and do everything, but it's too late. Um, <laughs> Um, and, and the people that want instant gratification go into surgery or, or cardiology because you can sort of clear up the problem with a stint or with you know, a surgical procedure. But the reality is in, in, in psychiatry, you can really help people. You take people. I've had, I mean, the best thing is when you have people who are brought in or they come in you know, right when they become ill and you treat them before they've suffered any real lasting uh, harm. Um, but even when you have people that have been ill for 10, 15 years and never come to treatment and they come in and you treat them for depression or you treat them for panic disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder um, and their lives change and they say, is this the way normal people are? It's, it, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, you really can turn people's lives around uh, with treatment as opposed to poison them or you know, take their money without doing it, you know, which is what the anti-psychiatry movement suggests. So that's far and away the most gratifying thing, is that in psychiatry, even though we may not know as much about what caused the illness, we're lucky that we do have effective treatments. And in terms of research, I think you know, we're really in the golden age. I mean, it's taken a long time. You know, I, I say psychiatry is kind of the late bloomer of the medical specialties. But now it's really coming into its prime and the momentum in biomedical research, particularly the focus on the brain. So I see a tremendous progress being made, particularly like with all areas of medicine, with this personalized medicine focus on genetics, which is going to kind of peel the onion. Right now we talk about depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, um, and we're lumping heterogeneous groups of people into the syndrome when really there's very specific you know, groups within that, and uh, uh, genetics will really be uh, very powerful at dissecting that. So that's something that I'm extremely optimistic about. Tom? This question up front? Yeah, I was going to ask you about schizophrenia, which I gather is, is your special field. And, I mean, an awful lot has happened for bipolar disorder, for depression, but it's still ghastly to have schizophrenia. Are things changing? And, uh, what's new? Well, they, they have changed. I mean, schizophrenia was you know, almost like a death sentence. I mean, you didn't die from it, but it was pretty much a um, diagnosis for inexorable disability. Uh, but 
that's not the case now. Um, and the reality is, is that what we've learned is, well, first, the big breakthrough is antipsychotic drugs, you know, Thorazine. Um, but what we learned more recently is that beyond just suppress, you know, it's like Alzheimer's disease, uh, drugs or treatments are classified into symptom-enhancing, improving, or disease-modifying. So symptom-improving are things like Aricept, which improve your cognition, but it doesn't affect the progression of the illness. Um, Disease-modifying is really the thing that uh, we're after, and that's been harder. So with schizophrenia, what we've learned is that um, by taking the drugs that we used to use as symptom-reducing and applying them with psychosocial treatments that keep the patient engaged in treatment at the beginning of the illness, we can prevent the progression. So I view, so it's like AIDS. You know, AIDS, uh, when I was in training, we would see people come into the emergency room with these horrible opportunistic infections and no white counts. There was no microorganism that they could identify. There was no known cause. So we described it as acquired immune deficiency syndrome. But then within six years, you know, Gallo and de Montagnier um, discovered the human immune deficiency virus. And then within another six or seven years, there was the antiretroviral and the protease inhibitors. And it became, instead of a mysterious death sentence, a chronic disease that could be managed and you could live with. Um, So uh, schizophrenia now is a chronic illness that can be managed and you can live with. So if it's treated early, if the person is engaged and continues in effective treatment, which prevents recurrences, like if you have a stroke and you don't have any further strokes, um, it can be contained. Um, so that's the new, new thing. You know, beyond that, there's also approaches to try and develop novel therapeutic agents uh, that work by other mechanisms than antipsychotic drugs. But even before any discoveries of that sort happen, uh, it's for, the, for the next generation of people who get ill, it is a, a, a manageable illness. Uh, yeah, um, two questions. The first, you had commented uh, what an impact Freud had on you and referred to him as brilliant. Are his insights still used in mainstream psychiatry and to what extent? Yeah, the question is about Freud and you know how relevant is his uh, uh, theory now. It's very relevant still. So um, Freud's theory was a brilliant theory, not of mental illness, but of the mind. Um, at the time, you know, there was not sort of a uh, very sophisticated... Psychology hadn't been invented yet. Um, Wilhelm Wundt was kind of the first inventor of, or founder of psychology. So there was no real understanding. And, and people thought that everything that they were aware of was in the mind. There was no idea of the unconscious. There was no idea of components of the mind. There was no idea of the way, you know, the mind developed over stages of life. Um, Freud invented all that. You know, the id ego, superego, defense mechanisms, um, the idea of the conscious and the unconscious. Um, and uh, that has actually found new life in cognitive neuroscience with implicit memory, with social cognition, with affective neuroscience, um, understanding. Uh, the problem is, is there was not the tools to scientifically study it, and Freud's big mistake was he was so controlling he wouldn't allow kind of empirical verification of his work. Um, 
the problem after that was that his disciples extended it to mental illness, which it has no relevance to. So Freud right now still informs how you learn psychiatry in terms of how you deal with it. Frankly, I find it more relevant in how I deal with my colleagues, my faculty, and my <laughs> medical co- than I do when dealing with my patients. Um, so that was his great contribution, and it still exists, but it's not so relevant for, for mental illness. Thank you. And then the second was, most of what I've read is really Oliver Sacks because he's a very entertaining writer. He, I gather, is a neurologist. Is there considerable cross-fertilization between psychiatry and neurology? And is that, it sounds as if it should be growing, but... Yeah, the question is about the relation between psychiatry and psychology, or neurology. Um, there, there, you know, the brain, so the brain is an organ like the heart and all the other organs, but the brain is really uh, unique. It is, by orders of magnitude, more complicated, so much so that it needs two, two specialties to cover it because it has so many functions. You know, it's functioning, it's regulating motor function, it's regulating your temperature, your satiety, your heart rate, your respiration. Um, it's it's, it's uh, mediating all of the basic functions totally outside of your awareness and at the same time, it's also mediating your higher order mental functions, which make you a person, which give you the ability to practice a profession, be creative, um, interact with people. Uh, and so um, there's tremendous overlap. You know, Oliver Sacks's particular niche is focusing on these unique brain syndromes, which shows how anomalies in the brain influence behavior. Um, so it's very much related. Uh, in that way, but uh, people say, you know, well, the two kind of remerge because they, they did start as a single profession that separated. Um, I don't think so, just because it's so much territory to cover. And if it ever did merge, I think it would become something like internal medicine. So internal medicine is the big category, but then you have rheumatology and gastroenterology and cardiology and pulmonology and everything in the middle. Maybe yes. one last question. I'm interested in the line between treating disease and enhancing life in general. And I'm wondering if you have ideas about how drugs might be used to enhance everybody's life potentially or a broader range of people. Well, you know, I think in the same way that um, our society has uh, really embraced, let's say, uh, a healthy lifestyle procedures like for cardiovascular health, um, such as diet, nutrition, uh, exercise, you know, not smoking. Um, there's also uh, practices that can enhance sort of brain health. And um, these are still sort of in an early stage, but I think that's something that will, will be growing in the future. So right now, we know that exercise is very good I mean, not just for cardiovascular health, but for brain health. We know that it's important to get sleep, that sleep is a regenerative process. Uh, We also know that caloric restriction um, helps longevity, brain longevity as well as somatic longevity. Um, And there are certain nutraceuticals that seem to be effective. I'm not a big uh, advocate of sort of nutritional therapies, but... 
a colleague of mine recently published a, a very influential paper which showed that flavanol, taken in very high concentrations, flavanol is a, is a naturally occurring ingredient in chocolate, um, but taken in high concentrations, so it's like the resveratrol story with uh, red wine, um, which actually can stimulate uh, neurotrophic effects within the brain, and particularly in the hippocampus. So um, I think this is something which is going to expand substantially. Um, psychiatry is not so much focused on that, although it may be in the future. You know, it's still sort of focused on mental illness. Uh, but I think, you know, this is going to be something which is going to, you know, people are going to, research is going to provide new information and new sort of strategies for that's going to benefit the population in the future. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about, one, the treatment of mental health, but also the treatment of sort of general human potential in that regard. Thanks to all of you. Thank you. Go buy the book.